Hey everybody, thanks for checking out this episode of our podcast. This time around we have Christina Woodkey. She is author, speaker, teacher, and practitioner of all things at the intersection of business and design, as she would put it. We get into a little bit more about what that means from her, and let me just tell you how absolutely blown away I was by the conversation we got to have with Christina. So we talked about a number of different things. She wrote a book on OKRs. We talked about that, what they are, uh, how to use them, and how she even applied them in her own personal life as well as business. And then we also got all the way down to the nitty-gritty of research synthesis and ways that we can get past of our assumptions to get to really, really deep insights about our customers to build awesome products and do as Christina would put it, outperform Steve Jobs any day of the week. Again, I cannot tell you how awesome this episode is, so you're not going to want to miss it. And if you think it was as awesome as I did, we would really appreciate you going and leaving a review wherever it is that you listen to our podcast. It helps us out a lot. And with that, on to the show. Welcome to Aurelius Podcast, Episode 11, with Christina Woodkey, author, educator, and speaker on all things at the intersection of business and design. Christina, thank you so much for jumping on the show with us today. Thank you, Zach, for having me. I am pretty excited to have a conversation with you for a number of reasons, and you know, we had a chance to chat before we started here, and obviously, uh, you've been you've been helping people do UX design, uh, the intersection of, you know, business and design that work better for quite some time. And I have personally been following you for a while. So it's a real honor for me to get a chance to chat with you about some of those things. I'm glad this is a podcast because I'm blushing. <laughs> well, I, uh, we, we are very honored to have you. You know, as a matter of fact, the intersection of business and design, I like that. And I think that there's probably some people who would hear that and say, okay, what does that really mean? So if somebody were to say, hey, you know, Christina, what has your work really been taking you these days? How would you answer that? So uh, let me tell you, Zach, um, when I very many years ago, when I was working at Yahoo, um, I was asked to step up and become a manager. I was the first interaction designer hired for search. Gosh, I can't even say how long ago, 2000, I want to say, 2001. And my boss um, asked me, would I please run this team? for search and become a manager. And I'd never been a manager before. And I felt really anxious. I think there's a lot of designers out there who feel anxious. Like when I stop designing, am I still a designer? And I realized that even though I wasn't designing interfaces and I wasn't designing information architecture or interaction design anymore, I was designing a place where design could happen. And that was a big moment in my life where I started to think about design as a way of approaching the world. And then after that, I started a startup, at which point I started to design businesses and designing organizations and designing a way to live in the world. And right now I, I actively design my life. So the moment that design stops being a noun and starts being a verb, all sorts of things are possible. And so my great passion is how can we make things a little bit better, a little more human, a little more effective, why do we always have to copy whatever's hot? Why do we have to try to make a quick buck? 
what if we could make all things possible? That what if we could make great products that really made people happy, that were financially viable? I like the word and a lot more than the word or. So I'm interested in how the design approach, design thinking, to use a an overused word, how can design thinking really make businesses that are better for the people who work, the customers, and even the world? Wow, I love that so much. And there are so many things that I actually want to unpack in what you said. So, you know, what it was really profound to me is how can we make everything that we're doing a little bit more human? And I mean, hey, let's face it, most people listening to this podcast are people building products for other people, uh, and they tend to be for profit. And you said that really struck me, why can't we do something that's, you know, good for those people and profitable and good for the world in some way? So I would just ask, you know, what... If there's one place to start for you that is most important to helping us get to that place, what is that? Um, the very first thing, this is going to sound so lame. Um, I think we have to start with understanding. Um, and I mean it not in the groovy, deep Zen way, but in understanding the business model. So when we, when I talk to designers, they often have no clue how their business makes money. Where do users come from? How do we get them? How do we keep them? All they're mad about is pop-ups are bad. It tends to be a little bit of, and these are younger designers, I'll say. The older designers, the more uh, experienced ones, you know, eventually figure this out. But I think we really have to understand the complexity that goes into a business model. One of the things I find really fascinating is Alex Osterwalder's business model canvas book, uh, Business Model Generation. Here's a guy a Swiss guy with a PhD in business and he goes crazy for visual thinking. He loves it so much. He draws everything. He creates the, the canvas, which is a visual thinking tool. He loves it so much that when he went to publish his book, um, no publisher would touch it. They're like, business books can't have pictures. Business books can't uh, be portrait. Business books can't be for color. Like they just, told him a thousand reasons he couldn't do what he did wanted to do. So he went out and he actually published his own book. And that book sold so well that the publisher came back to him and said, we want to pick up your book and gave him a lot of money to, uh, to publish it. And to me, that's design thinking as well. It's not something that necessarily belongs to designers, but it belongs to anybody who can see the power that visual thinking that, um, that design thinking can really do. So what I'm interested in is saying, you know, rather than just making a better interface or a sexy ad, what if we use this mental model that we have about figuring things out with our hands, talking to users, taking all that knowledge and synthesizing it into something that's actually meaningful? What if we take um, our approaches as designers and apply it to some of the hardest problems in the world, which are often business model problems. Why do we have to choose? What if we didn't have to choose? What would it take? And I think that designers um, have a lot of the training that they need, but they don't always have the inclination to go into those icky places. Um, I teach a class called Creative Founder to the students at CCA, um, and they're all art students. They're interaction designers uh, students. and. They're like, math is hard. And I'm like, I hate math too, but there are calculators. We can do this together. It'll be beautiful. So I think when we think about business, we have to first understand how does it work? How is it currently working? 
Um, what are all the pieces? What are all the inputs? What's the history? And at, from there, then we can start going, well, what rules can we break? Where can we push it? What can we move around? And that's where innovation starts to happen. Yes, yes. So I love so much about so many things that you just said. I feel like it's literally tidal wave after tidal wave of awesome stuff, and I'm trying to grab things I want to talk to you more about. So here's the interesting part, um, and I just want to add something personal there. Part of what you said, humanizing business, why do we have to choose? Why can't we have a business model that is actually good for people, good for the business, and good for the world in some way? That's actually something very personally important to us even at Aurelius, and and that's the way that we built our company, so much so that we didn't even take, uh, we don't have funding, and we're not seeking funding for that exact reason, because we wanted to build our company and stay true to solving a problem in the way that we wanted to, and not have to have some of those constraints and trade-offs. Outside of the personal note, you know, where you're really going with this, I love the fact that you first answered, not by saying, uh, you know, getting into some design rhetoric, right? Which is like, oh, we should we should do uh, some kind of testing or understanding with the customers and we should really understand design patterns and trends or whatever. You started by talking about understand the people you're working with and for. And that's beautiful. And I know that you've done a lot of work in the past and you wrote a book about OKRs. And I wonder how much of that you're touching on, you know, even right now, what your answer was. Um, it's it's been funny. So uh, so I start with uh, understanding business and understanding our business partners. One thing that always shocks me is that there are certainly some designers out there that have a lot of empathy for their users, and almost none for the people that they work in the trenches with. So um, you know, is after I became a, a design manager at Yahoo, and then I I started in consultancy, and then I started a a, a biz. I decided started a, a product company which got bought by LinkedIn. And when it got, when I got bought by LinkedIn, Reed Hoffman asked me a question. He said, you know, you have a, a long design background, but you started a company. Do you want to be product or design? And I chose product management and it was hard. I could not believe, believe how hard it was. And I was really lucky. I worked at LinkedIn in the early days and I worked with some of the most brilliant people possible. I'm super lucky to have had Alan Blue as a mentor um, but being a product manager is a designer of so many different things. It's a, you have to figure out acquisition. Where do users come from? You have to figure out retention. You have to figure out monetization. And it gets noisy. There's so many little bits and pieces of things. And then after that, I went on to MySpace, and I was really struggling there um, as a VP of social there, figuring out how do I take all these pieces, you know, these numbers are going down, these numbers are going up, everything's kind of crazy. And then I went to Zynga and at Zynga I was introduced to OKRs. And the reason I was introduced to OKRs there was because um, one of the VCs was a big proponent of them. And so we all used them and it was like, it was like you've been listening to music without a bass line and mm -hmm. then the bass came in. And yeah. all of a sudden, these 500 things that didn't make sense started to hold together. You know, trying to figure out why are these numbers going down and why are these numbers going up and when are we going to start this new project and what should we fund? And this guy's mad at this guy and this guy won't talk to somebody. And like all the craziness that comes from running product 
nothing to set it against, which was our goal. I always knew what I was trying to accomplish. And it was like a miracle. It was so useful and it was so powerful and it was so good. And so when I left Singa, you know, I was really burned out. I was really tired. I was doing nothing. Honestly, I was lying on the floor watching a lot of food TV. <laughs> and after about six months, well, and then I went to Thailand and I went to Japan and I wandered around and I'm like, okay, it's time to earn money again. I probably can't do this for much longer. Um, I started thinking, well, how am I going to organize my life? And I went back to OKRs and I started setting objectives and key results for my actual life. And it gave me structure to start um, start inventing a company for myself as a company of one. I didn't start another startup, although I considered it. But OKRs provided so much structure for me. And I started consulting with various companies and teaching them how to use OKRs. And I was like, holy cow, this little tiny itty bitty thing, this tiny thing of what if you set an objective? And it's a qualitative objective. It has to be inspirational. It's really funny because I talk to CEOs and they're like, Oh, we can just uh, we can just give them an objective of five million dollars, but not everybody's inspired by five right. million dollars. You know, um, there are people who need to know that they're making a difference in the world, and um, then we need the KRs for the people who do need the hard numbers. But by simply setting a clear goal that's both qualitative, let's change the world, and quantitative, we'll know the world is changing when we have five million dollars. That's the worst OKR I think I've <laughs> ever given as an example. Um, but. But by having a qualitative and quantitative goal that makes sense to everybody in the company, suddenly companies can work together. And it was just so exciting and so powerful that I decided to write a book about it. That is absolutely fantastic. That was kind of the scenic, <laughs> was the kind of the scenic view to answer your question. Sorry, the scenic route. No, that's awesome. And there's a lot I want to dig into there. So there are so many things there that I want to dig into. And... You know, I don't know. Let's just even start with the obvious. OKRs made design and product work better. If I were to summarize what I just heard you say, um, I would kind of throw that back. Made the whole company work better. Made the whole company work better. Great. Great. Oh, my gosh, yeah. So. Here's the problem is everybody. um, Oh, I'm sorry. I'm just going into it. Um, So here's here's the problem. It's just that. Everybody has an idea about what they're supposed to do. And it isn't always the same idea that the executives have. Um, and people tend to care about what they care about. You know, legal worries about being sued and customer service worries about being yelled at because they're yelled at every day for a living. And fine wants to make better things. And, you know, everybody cares about their little piece of the planet, which is good, except they need to care about the piece of the planet that points towards what the company's goals are. So what I'm excited about the OKRs is um, the execs who go around thinking everybody knows this stuff are forced to concisely explain to the entire company exactly what they would like to see happen this quarter. And then it's a question of how can I help? You know, How can legal help a new product go live? How can customer service make sure that, you know, people understand what the problems are. Um, that kind of clarity is strangely rare. And this is like a great mystery of my life is, you know, every time I talk to executives, they know exactly what's supposed to happen. And yet that message doesn't always get down to the frontline people. 
And so OKRs are just a shape, a form for making sure that everybody knows what they're trying to do. Yes, I love it. I love it. Okay, so I have found a lot of the same thing in my personal interactions and recent interactions with designers. And as a matter of fact, uh, one of our recent episodes with Audrey Crane, a partner at Design Map, she and I discussed this at great length and this, this building this empathy with the people you work for and with. And we talked a lot about goals. And, uh, you know, for the purpose of our conversation, I would say goals and OKRs are, you know, likely interchangeable. And what we talked about is, you know, goals is just, it's this understanding of what it is we're trying to do as a business uh, for the product and the experience, right? And it's funny because I recently gave, or not too long ago, gave a talk at World IA Day about this very topic. And, you know, specifically, it was talking about how we set up goals and even how we do that uh, at Aurelius, as a matter of fact, in our product, is there's a statement of something you want to do. And and what I hear you saying is it's that qualitative piece. And here's the thing that we want to do. It's uh, perhaps not measurable, but it is. it should be inspirational and it should be, you know, qualitative in nature. And then there are breaking those apart and saying, well, what should that what should that do? It should help us improve adoption or retention or whatever, right? And then actually the way that I've talked about it and the, and the way we, we do it at Aurelius is, is we set up success indicators or signals. And those are things that you should see behaviorally. You should see, hear, feel uh, if you're meeting that goal, if you're meeting that statement, right? And then finally adding metrics to that. It's simply things, how can you measure the success indicators that you see? I, I hear a lot of parallel there. And I just kind of wanted to unpack that and kind of lay it on the table for you to uh, for you to discuss. Well, absolutely. It sounds like you're doing OKRs in all but name. One of, uh, so it's interesting to me when I work with companies about OKRs is Designers always start with the objective. It's just, it's who we are, you know? We always see that big vision. And then we have to ask ourselves a really important question, which is how do we know? If we were being successful, what numbers would move if we were successful, which sound like your success indicators very much to me. So um, so that makes sense to me. What's funny is if you work with execs, if you work with um, a CEO or a chief product officer, they will give you a key result every time. It's so funny. Like, I'll be like, okay, what do you think we should be doing? And they'll be like, okay, we need, uh, you know, 200,000 new users or we need 5 million revenue or what have you. And I can use that old trick of why? Why, wh- why that number? Why mm-hmm. that many new users? Why that much money? What would that tell you? And we'll go back and back and back until we get to that objective, which is we want to make sure that the market is interested in our offering, for example. And, and then I can say, well, what other indicators? What other numbers might move? And we can come up with a few more. But I always find it interesting that designers in particular always have that big vision and product people um, are often more abductive. They leap to that key result. They're so living in numbers, but they Mm -hmm. know what, they know what the objective is. And it makes me wonder if we just need to talk to each other a lot more because we're interconnected in such a profound way. Um, I think we share a lot more goals than 
people who are caught in battles with their product managers think. Um, yeah, but I think a, your numbers I, are beautiful. Yeah, I, I agree with you uh, more than I could possibly say. And is it, I would actually go so far and to say, I believe our goals are for sure aligned more than we all realize. Communication, I think, is part of the key, but for sure one of the reasons and uh, I would say directives for, for the way we do goals and the way that we do and how you set them up in a product strategy, even within Aurelius. This is the way I've always done this in my career. And so, you know, going back to the conversation we had with Audrey recently, we were talking about goals and why is this super important, is that gives definition to what a good design or product decision is. If we have those clearly defined, we can point to that together later and say, well, this thing we're recommending or this thing we're going to act on, is it going to help us meet that goal and move those success indicators or those those key results and ultimately meet that objective? And it's no longer qualitative, right? It's no longer politics and it's no longer a pissing match uh, where somebody's opinions are going to win over uh, something that's a lot more actionable and objective. I couldn't agree more. Um, one of the weirdest things, and I, I noticed this first back when I was working at Yahoo and I've seen it at every company, is for whatever mysterious reason, we often don't see the competition as our true enemy. We see the guy we're sitting next to as our enemy. And maybe it's our little chimpanzee self. I don't know if you know this about chimpanzees, but when tribes reach a certain size, they break into two groups and try to kill each other. Wow, and I know. Oh, yes. Uh, when tribes of chimpanzees get to a certain size, they'll break into two, and then it's genocide. They literally murder the other tribe to last, to, down to the last one. And when I first heard this, I was kind of haunted because I felt like I would see this in companies. I would see that the designers hated product, and the product hated sales, and sales, well, sales is too busy making money to hate anybody, but they're, you know, <laughs> they're happy people. Um, but I it was really hard to remind people who the real enemy is, who the real competition is. And so I think that we, we think we're rational creatures and we aren't, we're, we're tribal beasts. We're, we're a lot closer to our chimpanzee self than we think. And one of the things I like about OKRs is they remind us that we're all trying to do the same thing and it uses multiple types of language. Um, one of the other things that I brought to OKRs, um, so, we have OKRs that came out of Google. Well, they didn't come out of Google. They came out of Intuit. But um, a lot of the Google approaches are the way we do it. But some of the things I brought to it with uh, Radical Focus, my book, um, is that this idea that every Friday we need to get together and we need to look at our OKRs and we all need to brag. We all need to say, what did we do towards this? And one of the things I think companies don't really get is how important celebrations are. And because I worked in game design for a little while, there's a fundamental principle in game design, which is when the user succeeds, you got to celebrate. We need music. We need fireworks. We need stars. We need lights. You've got to celebrate it. And in companies, um, people just are sort of quietly succeeding over in the corner, but that's not very inspirational. So one of the things um, I brought to the OKR process when I started teaching it to startups was Friday bragging sessions. And this, this is a child of Agile. I don't know if you're familiar with Agile, but every Friday, um, the engineers are supposed to show working code. They're supposed to show off whatever they did. But I thought, why, did, why not 
designers? What if the designers also showed whatever progress they made? What if sales talked about whatever they closed? What if biz dev talked about the deals they made? What if customer service talked about that little old lady that was driving them crazy who they finally helped? What mm -hmm. if everybody got two minutes to talk about how we got a little closer to OKRs? And that shared bragging, the shared goals, but also the shared progress offset the chimpanzee effect tremendously. Instead of becoming that guy in the corner, I don't know what he does, I don't know why we pay his salary, turned into that guy who closed that deal that's going to let me have the budget to build that really cool thing I want to do. It, it just changes the dynamic, and it gets people to talk to each other. So that's another piece of the puzzle that I like about OKRs. If, um, if you do more than set them, if you actually live them, if you really commit to them and you celebrate your wins, OKRs can be an amazing way to get everybody pointed in the same direction. That is so awesome. And, you know, what you're really doing is bringing alignment towards everybody who actually has that shared mission and vision. And we talk about this at companies all the time, and we wish that it happens. And we wish that this PowerPoint deck is going to inspire people to go and do this. And in reality, all we need is this common language and every decision we make, every act we take to be able to point to one of these goals or OKRs and say, this is why we did that. It's going to help us meet that. I think not only helps that conversation, but really helps people kind of fall in line. And as you said, uh, offset the chimpanzee effect, which I am absolutely going to steal and use that over again. <laughs> well, it also it kind of makes us like each other. And I know that that sounds like it should be a gimme, but it's so not a gimme. Um, it's good to know what everybody's up to. And um, companies get big. I have a company that I've worked with for a while in Scotland, and they do it on Slack, actually. They literally have a bragging channel where everybody brags every week and posts whatever they accomplish, and that's working for them really well. So there's a lot of ways to do it, but we have to respect the importance of sharing our wins together and celebrating together. That's lovely. I appreciate that so much. And I mean, even just to round off too, why it's so important for us that we literally made it a, a critical focus, even in our own product, is because one of the things that you can and have to basically do in building a product strategy in Aurelius is when you make decisions, right? So it's a, a feature recommendation or a design decision, doesn't matter. You actually link it to a goal that you set for that product and experience, right? Because you should be drawing that connection between the thing that you're doing and how it directly helps you meet something that we all should have agreed to. I love it. Well, that, I agree completely. That's one of the cool things about putting a methodology into the world. Um, I personally was very, very inspired by Eric Reese. Um, I spoke at Web 2.0, obviously by the name of it, many years ago. And I sat down during this um, talk next to this guy, and neither of us were enjoying the talk, and we were kind of being snarky back and forth. And then the guy I was being snarky with got up on stage, and it was Eric Reese. <laughs> and uh, he gave it his one of his first uh, Lean Startup talks, and we ended up being, you know, uh, friends. And um, it's been really fascinating to see how he designed his process because what he did was he started just blogging about the stuff he was figuring out. And, um, and then 
people would use it and they'd give him feedback and he made it better. And then he published his blog post as, I mean, he did Lean Startup even for his book. He, his first book was just a collection of his blog posts done by one of those print-on-demand companies and got feedback from it, made his book. And that story um, haunted me because I thought, well, who am I to say this is the right methodology? So I did the same thing. I posted blog posts about OKRs on Elegant Hack, and then eventually I made the book. And um, this really cool company named Gather Content took OKRs and decided they were going to do it at a product level. See, I'm bringing it back. So they decided that they would actually put um, OKRs on every single project they did. Um, so they just, so what's funny about it is they tried OKRs, uh, before I wrote my book and everybody hated it and they threw it out and they're like, okay, we're never doing OKRs. This is a stupid nonsense from, excuse me, I get to, I forgot I get to cuss. This is stupid bullshit from the Silicon Valley. This is you know, <laughs> yeah. a load of crap. This is snake oil. So they're like, we're not going to do this. And so, um, but one product manager really believed in them. And so without calling them OKRs, he made everybody write goals and metrics on every single project they were going to do. He was the head of product. So if you wanted to do a project to gather content, you would write the goal and the success metrics. So coming back to your, yeah. you know, you're doing OKRs without the words. And um, they made projects so successful that they're like, should we do goals and success metrics for the entire company? And he's like, well, yes. They might that be sounds like a OKRs. great idea. <laughs> <laughs> And they've been flying ever since. They made it their own. So um, so I love the idea. I mean, so often, you know, we get these projects and we're like, why are we even doing this? And how would we know they're successful? So there's no reason you can't do OKRs at the at the super micro level. There's, I think it's a very smart idea. And um, people come to me and they're like, am I doing this the right way? Is this the right methodology? And I'm like, how would I know? You know, I've already shared everything I know. You guys get to take it to the next level now. Like experiment, play, blog about it. Um, you know, methodology is not religion. It's just uh, a collection of best practices that have been written down for you so you can start a little farther forward from the start line, right? Yeah, absolutely. And what a wonderful story on the success of using OKRs or goals uh, and actually improving the product, the experience, and the business from such a simple yet profound thing. And it just leads me, I mean, it's a give me to say what's in a name out of that, right? Because words matter. In, in this case, OKRs, there was a, it sounds like by your story, a strong aversion to that because, oh, hey, this is some bullshit by somebody who wrote some stuff in the Silicon Valley. They're in a bubble, yada, yada, yada. Okay, we'll call it something else. We'll take the same steps and all of a sudden check out that success. Hey, maybe we should do this at a scale. Oh, interesting. All I did was call it something different, but it's the same process. Yep. It's the same philosophy. And sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes you have to call it OKRs, even if you're tweaking it in order to get people to adopt it. Cause there's some people who won't touch anything that hasn't already been proven. It's crazy, but it doesn't matter. The name doesn't matter. What matters is, is it making things better or is it not making things better? I completely agree. And so I'm actually going to take this a slightly different turn because this is somewhere, you know, you and I started, Christina, uh, and we certainly touched on this before we jumped onto the podcast where, so goals are important. OKRs are important, right? Having this shared vision that we're all acting towards, but there's got to be some other guiding principle. And you mentioned to me, well, hey, I think it's understanding people and more importantly, understanding it greater than just raw data or answers to 
research or a survey or something like that. Just in short, research and making sense of it, right? Oh, okay. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, so let's take a second. So we've, we've set some goals, right? Now we're going to ask ourselves um, how we're going to get there. And, you know, I do live in Palo Alto. I am Silicon Valley at this point. I think the Kool-Aid is like it coming out of my water tap at this point. So one of the goals we live with here all the time is innovation. And the problem with innovation is it's freaking hard <laughs> to be quite honest. So I see lots of startups all the time, like somebody's doing a photo sharing app. Oh, everybody's doing a photo sharing app. Wait, it's the sharing economy. Oh, it's car share. You know, it's just a lot of lemming behavior. And yeah. Yeah. the question becomes, how do we innovate? And then we get stupid ideas because people are just trying to do something different for the sake of being different. And then that's lame. So the question then becomes, um, how do we do something that is truly meaningful for users? And then, you know, as anyone would say, we should go talk to them, right? We should go do some research, as you were saying. Totally. And so, you know, okay, we go talk to them. And I will tell you what happens is they talk to whatever, eight people, 12 people, whatever number of people, and they read through and they get caught on some idea that they like. And that's the end of that. And then the, maybe there's a beautiful uh, report written, maybe there isn't, but it gets put away. So I've become really interested in the question of synthesis. How do we do really great synthesis that actually allows us to see the insights that are in the data? And one of my dear friends, Aviva uh, Rosenstein, um, and she's UX Aviva on Twitter, so I'm going to recommend you guys like follow her and listen to any wise things that she might say. Maybe we um, could have her on the podcast. You should, because she's so awesome. Um, Aviva uses this term called inhabiting the data. And I was hmm. like, oh, ooh, that sounds official. That's, she has a PhD, so I always think everything she says is official. But she <laughs> talks about inhabiting the data. And... Um, what does that even mean? How do we make sense of data? So there's another thing that I'm a huge fan of, and it's called distributed cognition. And distributed cognition is this idea that we do not think with our brains. We think we think with our brains, but the reality is we think with our brains, our hands, our bodies, and our environment. And I believe that this is the true meaning of the word design thinking. I think design thinking is basically thinking with our hands, our bodies, our environments, and a whole lot of post-it notes. So with these clues, right, uh, I need to inhabit the data. I need to do it with my hands, the environment, a lot of post-it notes. And then Steve Blank wrote something, and I think he just wrote it kind of offhand, which was you want to look for startups that belong in the intersection of the most common behaviors, like you know, we eat three times a day. We get married once a life, once a once a time in our life, three times, two, three, I don't know, people <laughs> marry a, lot, a wide variety amount of times. Um, and he said, and, it, and people have to care about it. They have to be passionate. So we buy socks a lot, but we really don't care that much. The best startups are in the intersection of passion and frequency. And because I work with visual thinking and modeling, I suddenly saw a two by two. So it was one of those funny moments where I was thinking, how do we make sense of data better Steve said this one thing, Aviva said this one thing, and I suddenly thought, let's rethink synthesis. 
So synthesis is the process after you've done all your research and you have all those notes, you have to make sense of it. And somewhere there's a researcher who's going to leave it on your podcast going, we've been doing this for 100 years because researchers <laughs> are amazing, they're very smart. But this is what I figured out to do, which is first we do the affinity grouping, right? We take, we have to fragment all this research and put it into tiny modules, their atomic unit. All these insights become little tiny atomic units. Mm -hmm. And then what we do is we affinity group them. Now, every designer has done this, but the problem is they don't, they stop there. After they put them in happy little circles of like with like, they stop. What you have to do then is you have to look at miscellaneous. There's always a pile of weird ones and you have to ask, is this weird insight here because the person was weird? Or is this weird insight here because we didn't think about it? And let's go back and create a, a screener and ask more questions and find out if this is a, a direction we wanna do. So you, you gather data, you get more data. We also wanna reorganize our data. So now that we've gone through this miserable, complicated experience of getting everything just the way we want it, we tear it all apart and we can do it on a timeline. What sort of insights do we have at the beginning of this process? Say it's travel, planning versus returning, packing. Oh my goodness, there's no insights about coming home and dealing with our memories and packing. And again, we have a little mystery. Is this because we're idiots and we didn't think of it? Or is it because people don't care? So maybe we'll go back and do a little more research and fill that out. Suddenly we're moving beyond our own assumptions. We can see where our assumptions live simply by reorganizing our data. Then when we have even more data, we can reorganize it again. And we can reorganize it using the Steve Blank idea, which is I just do a simple two by two where it's how often does people face these problems, questions, et cetera, and how much do they care about it? And we can then get rid of all the stuff that people don't care about or doesn't happen very often. Um, and obviously, if people care about it a lot, it doesn't happen very a lot much often, they will spend money. For example, buying a plane ticket or getting divorced. These are things that don't happen very often, but you will spend some money to get right. So there is some business potential in that corner. But there's a lot of richness and it happens all the time and people really care about it. So now we've started like, tearing apart our data, and we went from being in the travel space to really asking ourselves, um, do we want to think about memories? Do we want to think about eating? Do we want to think about making sure happy, families are happy? You know, And by rearranging the data and rearranging the data and rearranging the data against different uh, matrices, and I have a few more that I use, the data starts to tell us stories. We stop telling the data what we want, and the data starts telling it what it knows. And at that moment where we give up our ego, when we start listening to the stories the data has to tell us, when we start to give up our ego about what we thought we should be building, that's a magical moment. That's a moment where we can actually innovate, where we can move beyond what everybody's talking about, whether it be dog food subscriptions or ride sharing or photo sharing. Um, the moment we start listening to the secrets that the data has to tell us, that's when we have a shot of creating a successful startup. If we can just hang out a little bit in these wonderful things that people have told us, maybe we can actually do something new and meaningful and financially viable. Awesome. So this is actually a good place to point out that we are working on Aurelius version two, which is gonna be the smartest user research and insights platform for design and product teams. You can actually go to our website, www.aureliuslab.com and sign up for updates on our progress and get on the waitlist for beta access.
to check it out whenever we release that. But let's get back to the episode. Okay, so I love that so much, and there's a lot of things I want to pick apart about that. Where I wanted to go back to from that answer is, is it fair to say that that research data can start telling us its secrets when we start looking at it from the lens of those goals or those OKRs to say, hey, what is it that we're really trying to do? And what does the data or, or the insights that we have really tell us about that as opposed to what we thought it was going to tell us? Gosh, you're getting into like the super advanced, you're getting into the super advanced crazy stuff now. Um, to be honest, so there's classical OKRs and most OKRs are used for optimization, right? So we already know that we want to move into a new market. But there's another kind of OKR that I've developed for startups, um, which I call hypothesis OKRs. And so when you start super early, early stage, your only OKR is, is get to product market fit, right? That's the only thing that matters. All other OKRs are a joke. They're all bullshit. So that means that what's smart is after we've done some research and we've listened to the secrets and we start to have the idea of what we're trying to do, then we can set a hypothesis OKR. And the hypothesis OKR is a let's pretend moment. It means we say, we think we could be this company. How would we know if we were successfully being this company? And then we set the key results for it. So let's say we're looking at the data and from the data, we're going, oh my gosh, people don't know how to handle the data they get from their travel. Like they come home, they've stayed at these amazing hotels, they've taken these great photos, they wanna share it with people, but they don't know what to do with it. So we've come to believe that there actually is a business there. So our objective is gonna be to um, create a amazing business around sharing your learnings from travel. And how would we know we were successful? We'd have X number of signups, you could do landing pages, you could say we have X number of early travel partners who are willing to monetize it. You know, you start coming up with the key results. And then for, you know, three months or one month, depending on your timeline, this is one of the few times where I think three months may not be maybe too long, because startups are fast, fast, fast. We can create a hypothesis OKR, which then we set to prove or disprove. And then when it's crashed and burned, or it's been proven, you can create new uh, OKRs. So it's a way of avoiding the sort of analysis paralysis, shiny object syndrome that startups get so badly. But I gotta say the data should lead the goals rather than the other way around. And I know I might seem kind of crazy that way, but I really think that super crazy early startup, and we're talking about just the baby idea, right? Where you're super starting at the very beginning, that's where the, uh, the data leads the goals. The data tells you the stories. Um, later on, when you have a vision and you're trying to figure out how to accomplish it using the research, it flips, at which point the research is helping you make your goals. But in the very early days, you listen to the data and the data will lead you. I see. This is a very interesting answer for me. And I've not heard anybody. This is unique. This is the first time I've heard this. And, uh, and I find this fascinating. So what you're basically saying is when the idea is so nascent, so early, so new, that the the data should lead those goals or OKRs. Yes? Oh, absolutely. The, the, 
when you're at the very beginning, that's where you really set aside. I think there's too much of a uh, entrepreneur's visionary story that happens in the Silicon Valley. I think that's a great myth that there's just one guy and he has this great idea and they talks a bunch of people into building it. And then he's on the cover of Time Magazine. And that's just a crazy lie. But what's a lot better is there's somebody who cares about people with a problem. And oh my God, they want to solve this problem so badly because they really feel for these people. And so they go out and they do a ton of research and they start to really define the problem and understand it. And from there, they come up with a hypothesis around what the solution could be. And then from there, they start saying, ah, I might have a company. Let's set up a goal around that. Let's set up some objectives. Let's start building off of that insight. But one of my favorite companies, um, one of the few that I've chosen to invest in is a company that comes up with this idea, which is people in um, foreign countries have trouble sharing videos about their little kids, right? And they live in Poland. Their family lives in Poland. They live here. And it turns out that all the wonderful bandwidth that we have, the technology we, we take for granted, people don't have in the rest of the world. And they don't necessarily know how to solve the problem, but they know that Grandparents want to see videos of their little kids walking and laughing and joking. And they just stick with that problem, trying one solution after another after another. And they ended up with a wacky solution, which was email, right? How old school is that? But because they stayed with the problem and listened to the data and learned about how people actually shared information and what technology that people were actually using and were comfortable with, they came up with a powerful solution. And it's so funny because I'm walking along the street of um, Palo Alto with this entrepreneur and what happens but this woman pushing a baby carriage stops and hugs him <laughs> because she's so happy about his product because his product has allowed her to show pictures to, of the kids to their family in the ukraine and that's kind of cool they're making money and they're making meaning at the same time wow and they listen to the data wow yeah i mean what a what a profound and connected example to give to people on why you should do shit that matters. Because not only can you do something that matters for people, you can actually help honestly make the world better and make an honest business out of it. Absolutely. And what's funny about this guy is I met him when I was working at Zynga and he was selling me his mobile advertising service. And I was like, I saw his numbers. I'm like, why are you selling this? This is doing great. And he's like, I don't actually care. I don't like those people. And from there, he quit, he sold his company, and he started this company that connects grandparents and children. And that's, wow. that's okay. That's, yeah, that's that's a really, really great story and example. Um, and actually, in light of that, I mean, I want to I wanna bring it back to I th what I think is the salient point you made of make better sense of your data, make decisions based on that. You know, in this case, if it's a very early idea, allow that to drive you know, what your goals, what your OKRs should be. Uh, and, the, you know, the flip side of that, you were saying, if you're a more established company or product or business or all of those things, uh, perhaps, the, you know, the OKRs or the goals should drive what data you collect and then, you know, inform those decisions. I have a couple questions I want to ask you. The first one being, is that not also cyclical? Meaning, in an established company, <laughs> you're smiling and, and, and I think you know where I'm going with this. In an established company that believes, you know, hey, we know what our bread and butter is. We know the playbook. Let's do that. Um, should not the data honestly tell you 
in some cases, what the direction of your company should take. Well, everything goes away. Ask Blockbuster. You know, <laughs> you got to keep your eye on what's coming next. So sometimes if you're really listening to the data closely, you think you know what you're doing. But by spending time in rich synthesis, you'll start seeing the next pattern, the next possibilities. I've got to say Netflix has blown me away. Do you remember original Netflix? I when do. you would mail a DVD and they'd mail you a new one and look at them now they're doing original Hollywood publishing they're building new actual new series based on data they, they've collected about what people like and watch these are people who are always listening to the stories their data has to tell them yeah I mean they are literally the creators of the very content they sought out to provide people yes which is a wild turn Yes, exactly. I mean, they're inventing every single new series they invent is based on what their actual customers say they want. And by say, I mean, not necessarily verbally, partially verbally, partially behaviorally, partially quantitatively, partially qualitatively. They are the masters of yes. And I've got to say. And so there is that's proof of what listening to data can get you. Which is, again, like I said, if you can put aside your ego and that you're some sort of crazy Steve Jobs genius madman and actually just listen to the stories that, that the data tells you, you can, you can outperform Steve Jobs any day of the week. Yes. Okay. So everything that we're talking about has come to this point of synthesis, really understanding your customers from the data that you've collected, both qualitative and quantitative. I'm going to ask the incisive question. How do we do that, Christina? <laughs> well, um, I already talked a little bit about synthesis, about cutting and slicing and dicing the, the data a lot of ways, but you also have to avoid being caught in analysis paralysis. Like it's kind of a happy place to sit in synthesis forever, <laughs> right? Um, there's a point where you have to move forward. One of the things that I've become really, really passionate about when I talk about my design thinking practice and how I teach design thinking is what are we doing about the introverts? I know this is probably a little bit of a curveball for you, but think about how brainstorming is classically taught, right? Um, you get a very cheerful person uh, up by the whiteboard with a marker going, come on guys, just yell out your ideas. Come on, no judgment. You know who yells out their ideas? extroverted white men. You don't get the ideas of the introverts. You don't get the ideas of anybody who feels it's not safe to put their ideas out in a workplace. So one of the things that I've been working around is how do we get everybody's idea? We've, we've lived in the data. We've inhabited it. We truly understand it. Now, how do we make sure we actually get new ideas and not the usual blah, blah? And it's not enough to have a diverse team if the diverse team isn't actually sharing any of their cool new ideas, right? Wow. Right. Yeah, that's a huge point. So what I try to do is um, when we're dealing with uh, the brainstorming, instead of doing a classical yell out your ideas to, for the whiteboard, um, we do a, a practice called free listing to start with. And we use it um, in conjunction with Dave Gray's empathy map. So we start building pictures of the user and everybody writes down what they think the pains and the gains are. They picture the customer in a moment of decision. You come up with what they're hearing, what they're seeing, what they're feeling. Then we move to the value proposition canvas with Alex. Again, more free listing. The thing about free listing is everybody's silent and oh my God, it drives some people crazy. And you just write one idea per post-it note and you do that for a period of time. 
Now, when I say a period of time, if you make it just two minutes, people will try to write down as many as they can. But if you make it five minutes or even worse, eight minutes, what happens is everybody writes down the obvious ideas and then people are miserable. They're sitting there going, oh God, I don't have an idea. And then you get the weird ideas. You get the bad ideas. You get the new ideas, the innovative ideas. And by making it a little bit longer than is actually comfortable, people will start coming up with pretty cool ideas. The other technique I use is something I call the product as hero storyboard. So everybody I teach, when I teach design thinking, I teach everybody to draw. It doesn't take as long as you might think because I teach everybody to draw really badly, but bad pictures lead to good ideas. And then I have them make a little storyboard about people's lives. I have them create a user with a goal and a motivation. We create the inciting incident, which is when they've decided to actually try to solve this problem. Laura Klein talks about it. She says it's intent to solve. You want to find people who are actually willing to try to solve the problem as opposed to comfortable living with it. We show struggles, which is a classical part of story, which is have they tried a competitor? Um, Are they solving this at home already? We show the crisis. What would happen if they don't solve it? How bad will it get? Does it actually matter? Then we show the product showing up. Yay! And then we show... um, the how their life has changed, how it gets better. And out of these storyboards come what you might expect, some product ideas, wire flows, key screen sketches. We start moving to more traditional sketches. And this is really based off a classical uh, UX design charrette, which I believe has been rebranded by Google as a design sprint. Um, <laughs> but, but by taking people through these quiet individual um, experiences, doing the story you do separately, doing product sketches you do separately. And then we come back for simple dot voting. So we always generate a part, but evaluate together. This also allows us to harness everybody's ideas. And if you are working on an innovative product with a wicked problem, you cannot afford to miss one person's idea. You cannot just let the extroverts who are willing to yell in a meeting drive the product. So this is, um, Again, a distributed cognition approach. You know, we're making things with our hands. We're putting them on the wall. It's a design thinking approach, but it's an inclusive approach that respects diversity of ideas, of thoughts, and of backgrounds. And it's something that I think, uh, I don't think, I've seen it over and over again. It leads to truly novel products that solve real problems that thus become monetizable. And I know I always come back to that, but I'm an and person. No, this is amazing and mind-blowing to me because, yes, you're combining these two things. You're combining the saying of, here's what we're trying to do as a business, as a company, as a product, as an experience. This is what's important to us. And then here's this way of finding out what really matters for the people we're trying to do that for. And this is an approach that gets us to making the best decisions that help meet both. It is not an or. It is an and, as you say, an and person. And I think that that is so critically important. And thank you so much for sharing all of that that you just did. And I, I would actually just add as a quick a quick uh, exercise that I've done as well. It sounds very similar to something you've done is I've often asked people in research and from what we've learned the – and I think this is in Dave Gray's book as well, The Anti-Problem. Oh, uh, Yeah. What is the worst thing we can do to help solve that need or help meet this understanding? And interestingly enough, I've always described it to people as that gives you the edge of the cliff. 
You know where you're going to fall off. Now take one step back and just find out where you end up. And it could be a very interesting place. Christina, we could have this conversation, I am quite confident, <laughs> for several hours. I have just... I know I said this earlier in the episode, but I, it's just been tidal wave after tidal wave of <laughs> awesome stuff coming from you. Um, but we have to be respectful of your time and we have to be respectful of everybody else's time. Um, I have enjoyed our conversation so very much. And I would just ask you, is there anything that you would like to share specifically with uh, with those people who might be listening to the uh, podcast today? Uh, absolutely. Well, lately, um, as an aspect of design thinking, and I mentioned drawing storyboards, I've become incredibly passionate about teaching people how to draw. Um, I don't know why we expect that we should be able to sit down and draw perfectly when nobody expects you to sit down and play Chopin at the piano perfectly. It's a skill that you have to learn. So um, I'm very close to finishing up a book called Pencil Me In. It's um, a book about how to draw and how to use it for work. Um, unfortunately, the only way to find out when it's coming out is going to be to sign up on my website, Elegant Hack. There's a announcement list that I'll be honest, I'm too lazy to post to. So trust me, there's no actual danger of getting too many emails from it. But sign up there and I'll let you know when it's out. Um, I have guest essay drawings from Mike Rohde, who wrote the sketch note. Uh, book. I've got Eva Lada. I've got game designers like Stone LeBrand, who did SimCity, and Robert Hunecki, who did Journey. I've got an amazing collection of really stunning Dan Rome, um, who did Back of the Napkin. I've got an amazing collection of, of guest essayists who have drawn me little things for it, and I'm really excited by it. And if you're in the Bay Area, you can come to a Stanford one-day class about it, um, called working with pictures. So I think uh, that's my latest obsession, which is how can drawing make us better business people, which sounds kind of outlandish, but trust me, it's a real thing. How wonderful. We are going to make sure that that is in the show notes and link to even the sign up form. And you guys can check that out uh, as soon as this episode is out and, and find out when Christina's new book is coming out. Christina, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with me today. Oh, thank you so much, Zach. It was really, really fun to talk about these things. And I'm really excited that you guys are working on synthesis problems. I think it's not enough to do research. We have to make the research make sense. We completely agree. And catch out of the bag on that. We actually haven't officially announced this yet. You can edit it out. <laughs> no, we won't edit it out. I think it's completely fine for those of you listening to the podcast and familiar with our company. We're actually building a brand new product right now. It's basically going to be Google for your research insights, helping you do some of these, uh, tackle some of these synthesis problems. It's going to be pretty awesome. And uh, yeah, you can expect to hear more from us on that later. I wish I'd had that years ago. Thank you, Zach. Absolutely. Christina Woodkey, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Thank you. All right, everybody. We will see you next time. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a rating on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen to our podcast. And also, you can fill out our podcast survey where you can let us know if someone awesome that we should have on the show and even tell us about the things you would want to hear about, topics that are interesting for you. You can check that out in the show notes or on our website. Thanks for listening to Aurelius Podcast. 
talking about product strategy and design strategy. We are the first platform of its kind to help you solve the right problems for your customers and your business and build products and services that truly matter. You can check us out at AureliusLab.com. That is www.A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. And check us out on Twitter at AureliusLab and Instagram, AureliusLab. We'll see you next time.